accidentally it was found. In 1885, Van Gogh painted a painting which you may know as the Peasant Woman. And in 2022, in the National Gallery of Scotland, they x-rayed the picture for restoration purposes. And to the amazement of the people that were doing the x-ray, they found something that astonished the art world. And what they found was the first ever self-portrait of Vincent van Gogh hidden behind the peasant woman. So efforts are being made as we speak to restore and separate these two priceless pieces of art. But as you can imagine, this is not an easy task. For the back of it is glued on and now 140 years or so. Why do I tell you this story? Because this is nothing like our sin. For what we learn in the scriptures is that our sin cannot be separated from any effort that we may do on our own accord. But rather, our sin nature is infused. We are born with a sin nature. And as we open up God's word this morning, we're going to see the relevancy and the necessity for the word of God to become incarnate, to break through in space and time and become enfleshed so that our sins can be taken away. Not temporarily, but permanently for those that are in Christ. That's where we're going. Last week, we spent some time understanding that God's word is inspired. Man's word may inspire, but God's word alone is inspired. God's word alone informs us how we can be made right, restored into an eternal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. God's word is like a radiant, beautiful gem. Remember we talked and you listened about how there's a diamond that's perfectly cut. What I forgot to add, and Jeremy helpfully added this in a conversation we had. It isn't just a diamond. It's a diamond against a black drapery. What a helpful comment that was. And I know he took it from others. But here's the point. The radiancy of the diamond when the light shines through and illuminates from Genesis to Revelation is made more radiant when we understand the black backdrop that it is adhered to. When you go shopping for a diamond ring for the special someone on that special day, where do they place it against? A black backdrop. Why? Because the radiancy that shines from the diamond is made all the more apparent. And that is where we're going today. In order for us to understand the radiancy of Christ, in order for us to understand what happens in John 1.14, we have to understand in verse 5 where we're going that the darkness is not gray but black. We have to understand the depth of the darkness to understand the depth of the love of Christ. Therefore, we need to guard 
both the word of God and the identity of the word of God as revealed in the pages of scripture. Last week, I proposed to you four things that I pray for the church. Let me reemphasize those. A deeper love and understanding of the scripture, God's word, based on Psalm 119 verses 1 through 5. Number two, a fuller awareness of the sufficiency of the word of God, based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. An increased love for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit manifested in our obedience to his word and our love for others. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And finally, a preparedness and a willingness to be mightily used by God, locally and afar, in obedience to the great commission mandate given by Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Those four grounding pillars will be coming out soon in a document that will ground all we do to the elders to first review, but then to you, so that we have a grid that when things come in, we can look carefully at and make sure they line up to God's word. And so this is taking the great work that has come before us and holding high the centrality and the sufficiency of God's word. John was chosen for three reasons, actually four. Remember what they were. Simplicity, clarity, complexity, and applicability. So we said last week that John is as shallow that a child can wade in it and as deep as an elephant can swim in it. Listen to these words about the book of John. When we fellowship in the deepest way with our Lord Jesus, we will hear his beating heart. We will touch his wound prints. And hopefully with Thomas, we will say, my Lord and my God. In some ways, John's gospel is both as gentle as a lamb and as bold as a lion. The gospel is as deep as the sea and as high as the heavens. And yet its truths must be and can be contained in one human heart. It is an amazing account. Friends, John's gospel will be in for a long time. Because I want you to see the radiance and the beauty of Jesus Christ from cover to cover, verse by verse, so that your lives are impacted, your affections are stirred, and your obedience is increased to the word of God. 90% of the book of John is unique, you remember? There's the synoptics as a quick recap, which are the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John is the fourth of the gospels. The gospel is the Greek word that comes from euangelion. And what that means is good news. At the time when John's gospel was written, euangelion was used politically. It was to announce a coming of a new political leader. It was announcing perhaps a king that was coming in. It was good news that was being heralded, proclaimed. In the New Testament, what you have is a reclaiming of euangelion to what God intended it for. This was the best news of all. This was the proclamation of God as man coming into the world. The good news 
The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about the life of Jesus. Whereas in the book of John, it has been said, it holds high the heart of our Savior. And so if you take notes, we're going to be deep this morning. I've got two pages for you. I hope that we can really love to interact with God's word. And that you can not only write this down, but review it through the week so it encourages your heart and your walk with the Lord. So John's gospel is unique. One of the unique things that I neglected just because I forgot last week was the seven I am statements in the book of John. Seven I am statements. And those that know their Bible think of the word I am. You remember back in Exodus 3.14 when it was asked, Moses, who should I say? And God said, I am. That I am. The name of God is being used by Jesus not once, seven times in the book of John as an identifier as deity. There's also seven miracles in the book of John, five of which are unique to John's gospel. So you have clear divine revelation. One of the things that you may not have picked up if you've read it fast across is that there's actually at least three Passovers identified in the book of John. Why is that important? It allows us to understand the length of Jesus's ministry. We know only from the book of John that roughly Jesus was ministering for two and a half to three and a half years. John structurally is also unique. The book is characterized by short, pithy sentences, and it seems repetitive and repetitive. Here's an example. John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Three times we hear repetition, past tense. Three times we hear the repetition of word. Do you see what John is doing? John is using a rhetoric style by divine inspiration to reinforce biblical truths woven through short, memorable sentences. We all know them, but when we study them deeper, we realize the beauty of God's design. John 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, gives us a clear and direct picture. It's not a hidden picture like the Van Gogh, but it's a clear and direct picture as to the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you remember in the synoptics, they speak often, Jesus speaks in parables, which are stories that are meant to illuminate and communicate a central point, but often it's done in a confusing way to the people listening. So that that central idea is understood only by those that are intended to understand it. John's gospel is nothing like that. What it is is clear, direct communication as to the identity of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So let's look back to John 1 verses 1 through 5 and study God's word deeper. God's word says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. This carefully constructed Greek sentence confirms 
the identity of Jesus Christ as distinct. If you're a note taker, this is critical. Distinct from the Father. Listen carefully to what John's gospel says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, past tense, with God, and the word was God. There's a distinction in the very first sentence from the Father. R.C. Sproul in his commentary in the book of John states this one simple sentence. Listen to his words. More than any other passage in all of scripture is the foundation for the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity, the belief that God is one in three persons. Notice the past tense reinforced three times. In English, the word that we translated is the word was. In the beginning, was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The repetition of the word logos or logos is reinforced three times. It's used 331 times in the New Testament, this word. And it's only used as an identifier to deity to Jesus Christ. The traditional use of the word logos or logos comes from a standard meaning that designates words, speech. That's how we would normally think of it. We use that in English all the time, my words. So that's the typical use of the word logos. It is also used as a special meaning referring to special revelation of God's plan to his people, Mark 7:13. But logos in this case is a unique meaning that personifies the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. John 1:14. He, verse 2, was in the beginning with God. Do you remember last Sunday we talked about the personal pronoun use? It changes from capital W to the word he. John here is identifying that the word in verse 1, the word Jesus, was in the very beginning with God. He's transitioned to make it a personal name now, but he's still not telling you who it is. You know, like a master storyteller that lets you into the story but doesn't reveal what's going to happen? That's exactly what's happening in John verses 1 and 2. It's piqued your interest, has it not? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? And then it changes in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Do you remember what I said to you? Repetition, short sentences, repetitive, to reinforce the truths. So verse 2, what we have now is a personal pronoun being put into it that is identifying this is not an ethereal word. This is a personhood word. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Last week we read from Genesis 1. This week was Genesis 2. I heard comments from a number of people afterwards that they enjoyed hearing a bigger portion of the Old Testament read. Get used to that. Because my hope is that over time, we will learn to love God in big chunks and in small, deep study. So that over time, we understand the meta-narrative, the story from Genesis 1 to Revelation, and how that pairs into the preaching of the word. 
back in the beginning, in the beginning, we talked last week, God. But now, in the beginning, was the Word. So John is hearkening back to Genesis 1, and he is telling us that there is more personhoods than one. Do you catch the wording here? The essence of God, and this is a precise point, but it's so critical we understand this. Last week we talked about that all heresies and false teaching contorts and distorts the identity of Jesus Christ. But many false religions also have a plurality of gods or a limitation of God. But the Bible says very clearly, no, 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 there are three persons, one God. Do you see the difference here? So he was in the beginning with God. Now for us, people for centuries have tried to create analogies for us to get our human minds around this. Have you heard the analogy of the egg? It fails. I've heard the analogy of water. It fails. There's no human analogy. I've heard paint. It fails. Although it's a little better than the other ones. Right? Layers of a paint that as they go together, form an identity that is still all distinct and different and yet composite together. No matter which analogy that you try to get your brain around, or at least I try, it fails in comparison because we are finite and God is infinite. We cannot understand this truth, but we know it to be true. How do we know it? Because God's word tells us this. And so we have here the second person in the Trinity being identified in verse 2 and reinforced. And that's why R.C. Sproul and many others say this is a clear identifier of the Trinity of God. So if anybody ever says to you that God is only one personhood, take them into John 1, verses 1 through 2. So what's the distinction? Do you see what John is doing? He was in the beginning with God, with God. There's an identifier. There's an association that's happening here. It's not, if it just simply said he was God, there would be one. But he was in the beginning with God. So you have this association that John is wedging into here. But John is not finished with telling you and I different ways that Jesus is divine. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Remember last week. We stopped here, and I said, we're going to pick up stuff. I actually missed two pages of my notes, which made it easier to prepare for you this morning, truthfully. (laughs) So in that effort of preparing last week, I realized that the divine act of creation, we needed to explore a little further. So all things came into being. It it hearkens us to to Hebrews verses 1 through 4. Let me read to you God's word. Hebrews 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, 
to the extent that he inherited a more excellent name than they. This is a clear assertion of the deity. Now, children, for those that are younger, we use biblical terms all the time. Let me make sure we're clear when you heard the word deity. Deity means God. Okay? So for those watching online, for those that are newer Christians, sometimes we throw Christian terms out there and we want to be careful that we explain what this is and what it's not. This is an assertion that God is making about his son, the second person in the Trinity, that he is also God. And the third person in the Trinity, we just sang about it, is the Holy Spirit. So God is three persons, one essence, one God. You with me? So when we get to verse 3, when he says, He, all things came into being through him, and apart from him not even one thing came into the being that has come into being, it seems repetitious again, does it not? Why do you keep saying the word being, being, being? John is a master teacher. What he's doing with short, pithy sentences is reinforcing deep, deep biblical truths, not only to the act of creation, but to the identity of the Godhead. And so in verse 3, we see a hearkening back to Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. Next week, friends, we're going to talk about the light. We started with the word, then we're in the life, and next week we're going to the light. And God here in Genesis 1, God's word says, And God said, and God said, What does the Almighty, the maker of the heaven and the earth do? He speaks the world into existence. And John affirms that the word that brought the world into being has become the incarnate person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Do you understand how deep and profound this statement is? I want to pause us and really understand the magnitude of what's coming in John 1.14. This is not like other religions. This is not something that we read in other religions. God in other religions is distinct and different disassociated, not able to relate to humanity. He is completely different in other religions. But what we have here is something that is shocking, shocking. Because what John is setting the stage for in just 11 verses is God knowing the depth of the problem that has been created because of man's disobedience that we're going to read next week into Genesis 3, is going to intersect, not reactionary, but through his plan from eternity past. And he is going to take on in flesh, not for a moment, but for eternity. That's what's happening. I think we lost the mic. Did we? Okay. That's what's happening. And so what we have here is the stage being set the word has always existed as Jeremy so eloquently stated and read and now we're going to learn who is the word verse 3 also lets us know that God is not only passive 
but rather active in creation. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. Listen to what it finishes with. And for him. Do you catch that? It's not just that they were created through him as an agency or as a means. They were created, all things were created for him. You and I were created not for our benefit. You understand that, right? It's not for our glory. It's not for our enjoyment. We are intended, as I prayed to you, that our chief purpose is for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. We flourish when we align to the purpose that God created us for. And when humanity lives for themselves, not for God, darkness ensues and consumes. And that is exactly where we're going to end today. Show of hands, Star Wars fans. Wow. Okay, thank you for sitting scattered. So, Star Wars fans, in the original trilogy, George Lucas created three movies. A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and The Return of the Jedi. If you asked most Star Wars fans their favorite movie of all of the trilogies, in fact, maybe of all of the Star Wars, including some of the ones that weren't so good thereafter. Yeah, I'm older. So they would say, The Empire Strikes Back. Now, the amazing thing of that is that is the darkest of the trilogies. If you remember the scene at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, Luke has lost his hand. He's up on the spaceship. The enemy looks like it's won. They've had to retreat. Do you remember this? Darkness is everywhere. He was a master storyteller. He had to realize that they had to get into the depth of the problem and the enemy before the return of the Jedi would actually become such a way to close off and finish the journey. That's fictional. But the Bible also tells us of darkness that's far more consuming, that's far more problematic, and that's not fictional. It's one that is not in a condition that is based on what you do. It's not something based on what I do. You have children in the room, some of you. Did you have to teach your children to sin? Did you have to teach them to say no? Did you have to teach them that what they were doing was wrong? Yes. Why? Because they inherited a sin nature. And this sin nature is not something that's added on like the Van Gogh painting. This is inherited. Therefore, it is intrinsic to each of us in our birth. And John here is saying the depth of the problem needs the depth of the solution. And so in in John 1 uh, verse 3, when he's talking about that, All things came into being through him and nothing came into being that has come into being. It hearkens us, fast forward to Revelation 4, 11. You know the scene around the throne. 
Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, in power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and they were created. The enemy is on a mission to undermine the identity of Jesus Christ. He always has been. He always will be. The tactic that is used is a contortion and a distortion of God's word. Do you remember the devil faced Jesus in the wilderness three times? Three different temptations? Listen to the words of scripture and listen to how well our enemy knows the scripture. The devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, big if, Throw yourself down, for it is written. He knows the scriptures. He uses the scriptures. He contorts the scriptures. And he says, he will command his angels, quoting from Psalm 91, verse 12, concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responds to him, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16. And he says to Satan, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. One of the things that I enjoy each week, and if you don't go, please start to come, is the Wednesday night scripture for living. Why? Because one of the things I've watched in the room that's grown from 12 to 25 or whatever we are, Dwayne, now, and by God's grace, As it grows, one of the things that he constantly brings us back into is this. Use scripture to answer scripture. Quote scripture. Don't let our words, and Jesus models this three times. Now, Jesus is God, the incarnate, the son of God. Jesus arguably could have said anything he wanted. Could he not have? So why did Jesus quote scripture back to the devil? I believe the number one answer to that family feud question would be this, for our example. So that we know when temptation comes against us, when there is an attack, when the flaming arrows come at us, what are we to do? Store up the word of God in our minds and apply it back against and Jesus says it is also written isn't that a beautiful addition he not only knows what is said in isolation heresies are done by isolated scriptures misapplied and misidentifying who Jesus Christ is and so what you see here is Jesus is an example that when we face confrontation, distortion by the enemy, by others. Let's not attack, but let's apply God's word. How beautiful is Jesus' example here? He does not get angry, but rather he uses the word of God as the sword. The light, Jesus, in verse 3 here that we read, All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that was a being. Do you remember when God spoke? It came into being. And one of the first acts of creation is God spoke and there was 
light. Way back in Genesis 1, we have this duality of light that's going to be infused from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And it's going to have two purposes. It's going to have a physical life and a spiritual life. And so what we see here, as we continue in verse 4, in him, capital H, was life. And the life was the light of men. This small little sentence is so important. Because what he has done, what John has done in verse 4, traditionally there's a technical term called an antonym. And it's a boring term. But what it means in English is it's an opposite. Usually you see light and darkness and life and death. But what John is doing here is creating an association of life and light. And this thematically will go through the entire book of John and all the way through the New Testament to the very end as we see on the throne proclaiming, worthy are you to receive all honor, all power, all glory. In him was life and light. And so you have here one of the commentaries as these comments, life and light are inseparable. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 36 verse 9. Light was just made manifest. That means made known. Jesus later will say outright, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 8, 12, 9, 5, 12, 46. Do you see the theme that's starting to weave here? Light and life are going to be an associated theme to the identity of not only what has been created physically, but what is coming spiritually. Have you ever been in total darkness? I mean consuming darkness. Yeah. 2017, we had just moved to Kentucky. And Don and Olivia and our son Jonathan and Julia, I think, came as well. Well, No, she wasn't there. We went to the Indiana Caverns. And if you've ever been to a cavern, I thought I knew darkness until we went into a cavern. And so... The quick story was this. You walk through the cavern, somebody's guiding you, and then you get to a point in it, and the guide says, turn off all your phones, and he turns off the light. And then he says, take your hand and put it in front of your face and wiggle your fingers. Put it close. I couldn't see my hand this far apart from my face. It was total and overwhelming darkness. Physical darkness was immediately and once and for all overwhelmed through the words by God. God spoke and light came into existence, right? And since that precise moment, the physical darkness that we've described before that in Genesis 1-1 has now ceased to exist. What is darkness? The absence of light. For where light is, darkness may not dwell. I use the word sufficiency of scripture. 
Why I use that word is because the sufficiency of Scripture is this, that God's word is effective in all circumstances, and God's word is light to be applied to the darkness that we face across in all circumstances. God is light. This is the message we have heard and announced to you that God is light. First John 1, 5 through 10, there's no darkness at all. Do you catch that? It's not that there's a little bit of darkness. There's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship, Christians, if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, what does God's word say? We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he himself is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. So he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Have you made your choice as to the identity of Jesus Christ? I'm glad the numbers appear to be increasing in our church. But it's not the quantity of people that are in front of us online. We're not driven by metrics. We're driven by our walk with integrity with the Lord. Which means I want as many as possible to be here to hear God's word. Not for our purposes, but for God's purpose. There's nothing that I will ever say that will cause growth. That's only an act by God. But we are to proclaim faithfully who God is, what God's word does. And so the question I have with you is this. Have you made your choice to believe in Jesus Christ? If you have then we're to evidence it in our lives. I'm to evidence in my life, in private. There's an integrity, there's an alignment to this, not perfectly, but progressively. There's a sanctification progress that looks like the process is moving upwards to the right, that we reflect more like the light, we become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.4 makes it clear, in case I ever think that in any way anything I do contributes to my salvation, Ephesians 4 makes it exceedingly clear that this is entirely a work on behalf of God choosing me before the foundation of the world. Why is that important? Because it humbles us to realize that it's nothing that we can do or did do that enables us to have this standing. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, what are you waiting for? I would be misserving you as your pastor to not put it carefully. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They become committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. But... You have the ability, because you're hearing God's word right now, God's word tells us that all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But go to Romans 6.23. What is the solution? Christ. Faith in Christ changes once and for all. And then we're to live out, put off and put on. 
Richard Sibbs, which I normally don't highlight books, but this one I am going to highlight. If you want a book that is going to just bless your socks off, here's one. Refreshment for the Soul. Refreshment from the Soul, the Puritan Richard Sibbs. It's a year of daily devotional readings from the heavenly doctor. Let me read to you the words from one of the, one of the days in the heavenly conference book that it quotes from. Let me speak a word to the many who have yet their choice to make and yet another Lord or another God to rule over them. Let me consider what a fearful state it is to able to say God is my, my God and my Father. They can say that they be God's creatures. But what a fearful condition it is not to be able to say God is my Father. Will they not know that to the one whom he is not a God to be in favor, he will be a God in vengeance? He must be a friend or an enemy. There is no third position. If you do not belong to God, you belong to the devil. By opening their eyes to see their miserable condition, if you cannot say God is your God, then devil is your God. And what a fearful condition it is to be under the God of this world. And perhaps you may die so. If God be not our God, he is our enemy. And then creatures, angels, devils are against us. Conscious is against us. The world is against us. If he be for us, who is against us? And if he is against us, who is for us? A terrible condition. And therefore, get out of it, I beseech you. I couldn't say it better. So I thought I would quote him. And as your pastor, I beseech you. I'm not here to tickle your ears. We want to transform lives. When the world was created, it was very good. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The original creation was not marred. Genesis chapter 1 through 2, as we've read in the past two weeks, but the darkness. The darkness would envelop the once beautiful creation. Sin did not creep in like a shadow but consumed the created order, which immediately became evident through death. The once enlightened created order of mankind was now darkened. Verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, John 1, 5. And the darkness did not grasp it. Once again, there's a duality of meaning here. So what you have is a hearkening back to verse 3 in, in, in Genesis 1. At first, creation, God's darkness was over the surface of the deep, Genesis 1-2, and God said, let there be light. D.A. Carson clarifies in his commentary on the book of John, which, by the way, I would assert is the single best commentary that exists, in my opinion. Um, and he says, at no other time in creation could it be more appropriately said that the light shines in the darkness. Would you not agree? But God, Jesus, the word, the light, the life has come into the world. And John is telling them and to us today that verse 5, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. We know this is true. We know this is true. There are so many times 
in my life, and perhaps you can attest to this, where you have shared the truth of God's word to others faithfully, maybe abundantly, and it falls on deaf ears. But that does not take our accountability from not doing it. For God's word, as we know in other parts of scripture, some falls on good soil. And so our job as Christians is to continue to proclaim of the good news that is found in and through this. We are to evangelize. We are to be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. For we do not know who God may save and when. So we are to do it faithfully, abundantly, with all of our life until the very end. John is telling them that the light is not only bound up in the physical creation as the means of the Father but he's used for creating physical life. There's also a spiritual life. And John is foreshadowing that the light is indeed the light of salvation, Jesus. The son who takes away the sins of humanity. John wants us to see that the light of creation and the light of redemption is going to be brought forward and has been brought forward in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. More to come on this. Christmas morning, we're going to come back to this. John 1.14. And possibly, we might do more on Christmas than you're aware of right now. More to come on this. Look carefully at the end of verse 5. Look to the word grasp. Grasp is not like holding on to something, but it's rather, it's a lack of understanding. The underlying Greek word here could be translated comprehend or apprehend, meaning there's a total lack of comprehension. Before the light of Jesus, spiritual minds are plunged into darkness, not unrestrained by the grace of God, but in darkness nonetheless. Mankind in their spiritual dark state is affected and effected by sin transmitted through the original Adam, and therefore cannot understand the light. Apart from the light brought by the Messiah, the incarnate world, people loved the darkness. Did you catch that? It isn't that they just walked in darkness. They loved the darkness because their deeds are evil, John 3, 19. And when the light does not, is, is out of appearance, they hate it because they do not want their deeds to be exposed, John 3, 20. I'm going to finish with Psalm 36 in two parts. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open it to Psalm 36. Psalm 36, God's word says, let me flip here as well. So Psalm 36. Context here, this is a psalm of David to the servant, a servant to the Lord, as you'll see. Verses 1 through 4 illuminates the depravity and the darkness of humanity. Transgression speaks Psalm 36, verse 1, speaks to the ungodly with his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and do good. He plans wickedness on his bed, and he sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Man's sinful sinful condition is not like Van Gogh. There is no way to separate our sin 
from a holy and just God based on our actions. And that's exactly what this is pointing us forward to. We are infused with sin. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One trespass led to condemnation for all mankind. Romans 5.18. John 1.5 leaves the reader in a very dark place. I would be misserving you as your pastor if I didn't let you stay there. If I ran to the cross and ran to the solution without understanding the depravity of the depth of the darkness, it would actually misserve all of us, including myself. The reason that we love the light and the life is we have to have a deep appreciation for the darkness, the disparity, and the depravity without God, without Christ. Church family, aren't we thankful the Bible is not fictional? In Star Wars, Return of the Jedi comes and everything gets made right, at least for a while. And then 20 years later, they stir up the pot again to make some more money. The Bible's not like that. This isn't a reactionary tale or something that's fictitional. This is a, a story that from the very point of creation to the very point of exaltation, there is a clear plan. And it's revealed piece by piece. One of the professors once said to me, and I thought it was a fabulous analogy. He said, it's like a staircase. The Old Testament was a darkened staircase. There was something at the top. There was a light. But there really wasn't a lot of clarity as to who or what that light was. But with Christ, it was like a spotlight that revealed back through the entire Old Testament. And shone through all of those things that pointed to him. We know that's true. And right now, we see the light and the life has come into the world. Aren't we thankful for the amazing love of God? That in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, totally lost in our understanding, unable to save ourselves, walking in darkness, literally the walking dead. You've seen that show. Hopefully not. You know the name. We were walking dead, but Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God, Romans 6, 23, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we believe these words to be true, if we believe these words to be true, then we must follow as Paul commands us in Philippians 2, 12, to work out our salvation with fear And with trembling. To have such godly fear and trembling involves more than acknowledging our sinfulness and spiritual weakness. It is a solemn, reverential fear that springs from a deep adoration and our love for the Lord. Such fear and trembling acknowledges that every sin is an offense against a holy and just God. We do not want to offend Him, we do not want to aggrieve Him. Such fear and trembling spurs to faithful obedience, honoring, pleasing, glorifying him in all things. Those who fear the Lord willingly accept this chastening, knowing that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12.10. Go back to Psalm 36 as we finish. David's not done. 
you'll notice in your Bibles that there is a space between verse 4 and 5. Something has happened. There's a different thought unit that is coming here by divine inspiration. David does not know precisely, based on every commentary that I could assess, what exactly the identification is of the good news. But he knows that there's good news through divine inspiration. And he says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, capital O Lord, that means the name, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their full, in a, fill an abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Here it is, verse 9. And this says, for with you is the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. Next week, we're going to dive into the light. David here is telling us that we are not lost in our hopeless and helpless estate with Christ as we look backwards to look forward. We affirm in Matthew 6.22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, the whole body is full of light. But if the eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is in darkness, how great the darkness. Father, we shudder at the thought of being darkened at our understanding of you and your word. Father, we affirm because your word instructs us that Jesus is the light of life and the life of light. Father, we affirm that he is the light that we drive our very life. John 14.6 And Father, we affirm that Jesus alone is the true light of this world. And he will be the true light of the world to come, whether we know it or not. Revelation 21.23 Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we long to know your word deeper we long as your local church to gaze more on your precious son who took our sins in our deserved place. We acknowledge that Jesus is the word incarnate, the life and the light of the world who pierced the darkness once and for all time. And we acknowledge that darkness is the absence of light. We once were lost, but as believers, we are found by faith, and we are to live as children of the light. So, Father, help us each day that through your spirit we continually put off the old self, put on the new, so we look more like your radiant son, Christ. The word, the life, and the light. And it's in his precious son, in his name we pray. Amen.